Good morning. Welcome, welcome. And I'll just remind you that our first song, we just sing up here, the team, so you can uh, contemplate, meditate, listen, and come out of sadness.
As we sang, come out of sadness, one possible place of sadness is being under the law, trying to earn favor with God and having no hope or possibility of being good enough or not knowing whether you're doing enough to be good enough. It's the law. Paul calls it the ministry that brought death. In Second Corinthians 3, it says, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the sur- with the surpassing glory and if what was transitory came with glory how much greater is the glory of that which lasts therefore since we have such a hope we are very bold we are not like moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this very day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. And now Dave will come and... Lead us in prayer. I wanted to read a favorite to you before we pray. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you take care of them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we trust fully in you this morning for you're a loving God, you're a good God, you're kind, you're all-knowing. You, Lord, love us so much that we can trust you, and we thank you for that, Lord. 
And yet these events of our lives, they, they weigh heavy on us. They loom big in our life. The uh, health that we hold so dear, the things that we build that fall down, the, the, the uh, relationships that fall apart, Lord, all these things, they, they trouble us. And we bring them to you. And it's right, Lord, that we can do that. But we know, Lord, that you already know them ahead of time. You've already cared for them. You've already cared for us. And we uh, think, Lord, how if we look at the heavens, that even in this one little aspect of your creation, this one little aspect of you, the heavens, we see such majesty, Lord, that we wonder why do you even consider man? Why such a little thing as man compared to all this? You live outside of time you are all powerful you have this so this ability in this in this character so far above us that our little problems and our little lives don't really seem like they should even matter and yet you care we thank you lord for that we pray lord today for those who are suffering from health issues we have uh, several who have cancer, Lord, and we know how scary that is and how difficult that is. We have people who have having marital issues and relationship problems, and we pray, Lord, for them today. We, we thank you, Lord, that you uh, have all the things that plague us in mind. You even know what's going to happen tomorrow and that we don't have to worry about that. We praise you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm Randy Pospichel. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone. Happy to have you here this morning as we look into God's Word together. Um, if you have a Bible, and there should be some close, you might have to get up from your seat to find one. Uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10 today. Um, as I was thinking about the sermon before I came up, I realized I'm not prayed up enough. So though we've prayed a couple of times, let's pray once more. God, help us to draw near to you with a true heart in sincerity God, uh, I know that I have not drawn near to you enough. That there are times I have held you at a distance. That I have not um, considered you. And I'm sure that my friends here today uh, have that. There, might, there are some that have that feeling as well. I pray, God, that you would remind us that you love us. That we can come to you. That when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. God, help us to do that today as we draw near to you through your word. May you bless its reading and its exposition. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. October 30th, 1935, at Wright Field, northeast of Dayton, Ohio, the Boeing 299 Flying Fortress was set to take off 
with the U.S. Army Air Corps test pilot Major Pete Hill at the helm. He'd flown just under 60 other planes uh, similarly. He was well-seasoned. He was called an officer and a gentleman of truly great distinction. But on this date, inexplicably, the gust locks were not disengaged before takeoff, something very common to do. The Boeing pilot observed in the, that was observing in the plane tried to unlock them during takeoff, but uh, he was too late from his observer's seat. Just as the plane took off, it stalled and crashed. Two people died that day. Now that terrible accident could have been avoided and is now routinely avoided by the adoption of a simple practice of a checklist. Every pilot, no matter their experience at every taxi, takeoff and landing, use a checklist to make sure that they've done everything that they're supposed to do. One pilot reads the list, the other pilot uh, answers the questions on the list, and the pilot reading the list verifies that they actually looked at the thing that they were checking. And this system works because every pilot swallows their pride, understands that it's important, and they do it. And they hold each other accountable to do it, to follow the checklist. Checklists work because they make sure that the plane's configured correctly. They provide a standard of foundation for verification. They keep all the members of the crew in, in the loop. They dictate the duties of the crew. And they serve as kind of a quality control. Checklists work. When I was traveling all over the country for work over the past several years, I rode on a lot of airplanes. And I was happy that every time we got on that airplane, they went through the checklist. Uh, Kim and the kids and I were to Cal went to Colorado a few weeks ago. And as we were sitting on our seats ready for uh, getting ready to taxi, the pilot came over the loudspeaker and said there was a problem found in the pre-check checklist and they needed to call maintenance. Eventually we had to get off that plane, go to another plane before we could finally go. It was inconvenient for sure, but I am sure glad they found that with the checklist. Checklists work. The Harvard Business Review said when surgical teams implement a checklist in the operating theater, complications go down by 36% and deaths were cut by half. So if highly skilled professionals like surgeons and pilots rely on a checklist to make sure that they're on the path to success, then I think they're probably a good idea for everybody. And the Christian life has a checklist as well. This morning we're going to be looking at this checklist. We're going to take a little break from the book of Exodus and kind of go to the companion handbook of the book of Exodus, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to spend some time on Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. This, this is the checklist of the Christian life given by the author of Hebrews to the saints who read this letter. Let's read this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up 
meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. The passage begins with some context of the checklist in verses 19 through 21, and then we'll move to the content of the checklist in verses 22 through 25. First the context, then the content. The context of the checklist, verses 19 through 21. To live a successful Christian life by the checklist presented here, you have to have some firm foundation. First, the author says, we have the confidence to enter the most holy place. As Matt brought to us uh, last week, we were talking about the tabernacle. That was the place where God met with his people in the wilderness. And the temple then was made uh, after that same pattern for the place where God would meet his people in the promised land. Both of these were shadows, though, of the actual reality of the heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of the creation. See, Christ entered the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle made without human hands, he entered the most holy place, the very center where God dwells in his fullness. And because Jesus had done this and we are in him, we have also entered that most holy place. Jesus, it says, did it with confidence, knowing that he had perfectly fulfilled the law and given his life as a ransom for us. And because of his confidence, we have confidence. His confidence was found by the blood. This confidence is not hubris or pride. We don't enter the most holy place because of our own worth or our own value. We enter the most holy place of God because we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. In the book of Exodus and Leviticus, sacrifices are spelled out for various positions before God, whether to cover for sin or to make reparation or to show thanksgiving. But all of these sacrifices have one thing in common, blood. Hebrews 9, 19 and following says, When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires, listen to this, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And here, the author tells us, we have confidence to enter this most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. So that's the first piece of context. We have this confidence the next piece of confidence, or context is found in verse 20. We have got confidence to enter through the curtain that is his body. Here we have body and blood going hand in hand. Just as in communion, which we'll celebrate later, we take the bread to symbolize the body and the cup to symbolize the blood. So body and blood are brought together here as well. We enter the most holy place with confidence because we've been covered with the blood of Jesus and the veil that separates the most holy place 
from the rest of creation was the body of Christ. It's a really interesting connection here that the author of Hebrews uses. He says that, uh, that Jesus' body is the veil that separates from the most holy place, and it's been ripped in two. The author is alluding, alluding of, course, of course, to the event of the cross. Matthew 27, 50-51 says, And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the author of Hebrews says that veil that separated us from the Holy of Holies was his body. The notes of the Net Bible say, Just as the curtain was split, so Christ's body was broken for us to give us access into God's presence. We can have confidence to be in the presence of Almighty God because Jesus' body was broken for us. Another author writes, Many of the Jews stumbled over Jesus' common humanity, that he was a carpenter in, verse, in Mark 6, uh, 3. So in that sense, his humanity, his humanity was like the veil in the temple, blocked sinners from God. But the cross opens the way for us to enter the holy place with confidence. So to enter the holy of holies without the blood cleansing us would mean death. But because of Jesus' death on the cross and his tearing of his body for us, the veil, we have access to God in a new and living way. The scene continues with the third piece of context for the checklist of the Christian life. Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus not only is the sacrifice that shed his blood, he is the veil that is torn in two, and he is the priest that guides us in. Have you ever been somewhere and you needed a guide? When I was a kid, my family went to um, uh, Hannibal, Missouri, and we saw the Mark Twain Cave. I think there's going to be a picture of the Mark Twain Cave. There it is. Uh, it's this huge labyrinth complex. At one point, they turn off the lights and they say, put your hand in front of your face, and you cannot see your hand in front of your face. Can you imagine what that cave would be like to walk through without a guide? You'd be, you could get lost forever in there. The priest is like the guide in the cave. He knows the way to God. We have a great high priest, Jesus, that knows the way. The priest facilitates entering the most holy place. He makes the way. He makes the sacrifice. He knows the ritual. We can enter with confidence into the most holy place, the place where God dwells, because we have this high priest that has shown us the way. So we have that context in place. We can walk with confidence before the throne of God. And so because of that context, let's look at the content of our checklist. What should we do because of that? He says these are the three things on our checklist. Draw near, hold fast, and consider. First, draw near to God, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 says something similar. 
He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the hands by uh, done in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time that you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The checklist of the Christian life says, first, draw near to God. So, I'm your co-pilot here. Are you drawing near to God? Check the gauges and see. Would you say that your life is marked by being in the presence of God? We read earlier when Moses went up to the mountain with God, when he came down from the mountain, he had a veil over his face, his face to shield his face from the glory that was showing brightly. Are you glowing brightly in the presence of God? This month, my parents celebrate their 50th years of, year of marriage. Here they are, right over there. <laughs> 50 years of marriage. Uh, what a blessing. The two people that stayed together alongside each other, even though, I don't know what it was, it must have been orneriness that kept them together, they drew near to each other. When things got tough, instead of pulling away from each other, they got closer. That's drawing near. Now, I'm a practical person. I, I want to know, I want to get down to brass tacks. What does draw near to God look like? Is it a feeling? Is it a ritual? What is it? It's a good thing the author of Hebrews tells us what it is. Uh, it says um, that we have, the author tells us, draw near to God means we have a sincere heart and full assurance of faith that we have hearts sprinkled and our body washed. First, it says a sincere heart. The King James says a true heart. In this case, it's a heart that is real and genuine. To draw near to God, you have to be uh, be right down to the heart, true with God. Earlier in the book, the author says, the word of God is active and alive, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God knows already. But having a true heart means you acknowledge that God knows already, that God knows you. You don't have to try and hide anything from him. You don't have to impress him. My daughter Lauren spent the week at East Iowa Bible Camp this week, and she learned this lesson very well. On the ride home, as we were talking about what she learned, she said that she learned the only person she has to impress is God, and you don't have to impress him, so you don't really even have to do that. That's a pretty good word of wisdom for a week at camp. It is interesting that from the very beginning, when we um, are distant from God, we hide from him. Adam and Eve, when their eyes were opened and they saw the shame of their sin, what did, it, what did they do? The Bible says they hid from God in the garden. Now, did they really think that they could hide from God? He was the only person they knew. Did they really think that they could hide from Him? But God pursued them. He said, where are you in the garden? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because... I was naked, so I hid. 
See, our natural inclination is when we, turn, when we turn away from God, we try to hide. The checklist says, draw near to God with a real, true, genuine heart. He already knows. He's pursuing you already. Be real with God. Turn to Him. We draw near to God by having a true heart and having this full assurance of faith. The author is going to expand what that means in chapter 11, 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We draw near to God because we can be sure that He will accept us. The reason we hide from God, I think, is because we aren't sure of that. We don't know whether we're accepted or not, so we are afraid. But faith says don't be afraid because God accepts you. I'm kind of a softy deep down, though I don't show it very often. One song that makes me bawl every time I sing it, I was, we were singing it on the way to church this morning and I nearly bawled then, was, uh, it's the song, When God Ran. It was covered by Phillips, Craig, and Dean back in 1999. The first verse talks about the omnipotent, powerful God that never runs. But when he, the author, the person singing, saw God run... When God ran to me, he took me in his arms, he held my head to his chest and said, my sons come home again. God wiped his tears and said, son, do you know I still love you? Faith assures us that God loves us and accepts us, that he pursues us and draws near to us so we can draw near to him. And we know that this acceptance comes through two things. The author uses these two symbols of faith that draw us near to God, that give us that assurance. Let me tell you this, it's not simply belief. I, I kind of get annoyed by signs on walls that say believe. Believe in what? What are we talking about? There is some substance here. What do we believe in? What do we have this assurance of? What is this hope that we have? These two symbols, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The first symbol of sprinkling reflects back to what was seen in Hebrews 9, 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Moses sprinkled the sacrificial blood on the people to take away their guilt. See, they had turned away from God, and when God drew near to them by the, the means of the law, they had to have their guilt removed. See, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Moses killed the sacrifice and sprinkled the people. And Jesus, in the same way, was the sacrifice, and his blood was sprinkled to cleanse us of our guilt. When we believe this truth that Jesus died to save me from my sin, we are sprinkled with that sacrificial blood and our guilt is gone. That was for a one-time, complete, sufficient sacrifice for all people for all time. Jesus died to save. That's the first symbol. The second symbol of faith is the washing with pure water. This refers to baptism, the outward sign of faith with spiritual significance. In a few weeks, we're going to be having a baptismal service. 
And those that are being washed in the water of baptism are expressing that they've been made clean. Because of their belief in the sacrifice of Jesus, they claim in baptism that they're made new, that their guilt is gone, and they're alive. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Or do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Those who have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice and have been cleansed by the washing, we can draw near to him with assurance and truth. So that's the first part of the checklist of the Christian life. Draw near to God. Are you ready for takeoff? Here's the second item on the checklist in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I love the King James translation here, hold fast. Sailors borrow this uh, terminology um, when they're sailing. Hold fast as the sea swells, meaning hold on with all you have. The author of Hebrews tells us to hold fast to the hope that we profess. That hope that we profess, that we proclaim, that we confess. That Greek word has, uh, is made up of two, pro, uh, two compound Greek words. Homo, together, and logia, word. These are the words that we hold together. We draw near to God by the body and blood of Jesus, and we hold fast to this hope by having this same confession of faith. I think the Apostle Paul sums up this hope that we have best in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. If you've not underlined these verses and have this, this, your Bible just fall open to these verses, I'd encourage you, underline these. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Because this is the cornerstone. Now, brothers and sisters, I want, to I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." This is the central core of the Christian faith. It is the rock on which we stand. It is the immovable truth that all else rests on. Any other message, no matter how flattering or promising, is shifting sand. We hold fast to this truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again, according to the Scriptures, to save us from our sins. We can hold this promise. Because the author says the one who promised is trustworthy. He will keep his word. So the co-pilot's reading the checklist. Are you holding fast? Check the gauges. In order to hold fast to the truth, you have to know the truth. Paul writes it so simply, so succinctly, but there is such depth there. You could spend hours, you could spend days on each part and still not plumb the depths of that truth. 
Karl Barth, uh, one of the most profound theologians of the 20th century and one of my favorites, when asked to summarize his theology in one sentence, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Profoundly true. Depth beyond measure. Now, don't make mistake the simplicity of Bart or Paul's statement to be a lack of rigorous thought. By all means, no. They spilt oceans of ink writing and thinking about the depths of these truths. They had a simple faith, but not a simplistic faith. Do you spend your time thinking about these truths? Do you read the Bible deeply, slowly, thoughtfully? We kidded last week, or maybe it was the other week, about Leviticus. When you are reading the Bible through in a year and you get to Leviticus and you have a hard time making it through. But when you come to a challenging part of the Bible, a part that's hard, just hard to read, hard to understand, do you throw up your hands and move on? Oh, just give me a little book of John. I like that a little better. Or do you dig in? Do you slow down? Do you ask for direction, either from other Christians or other commentators or uh, you know, other people? Do you ponder deeply the Word of God? I believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, and that power must be met with a vigor to hold fast. Not everyone's going to be a writer of theology. Not everyone is going to be a great biblical scholar. I get that. But every Christian has on their checklist to hold fast to the truth. Are you holding fast? Could you, could you talk about it? Do you believe it? Do you grab onto it? I get to work with the children here most of the time, and though I've missed them during this coronavirus, when we get together, I love the insights that the kids have we've, that we've learned together in Sunday school. I encourage you, have you, do you have that same kind of inquisitiveness, that same kind of desire to explore that the children have? When you come to something hard, do you hold fast to the truth of God? So check the gauges. Are you ready for takeoff? There's the third item on the checklist is found in verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Consider is the third item. Consider how to spur each other on. Listen, this COVID-19 crisis has certainly put a strain on this part of the checklist. How does one spur on their brothers or sisters when simply breathing on each other can be dangerous? It's been difficult. You know that just as well as I do. I don't really know how we did, honestly. Looking back at the last several months, I feel like I've been disconnected. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I just haven't seen you except in the last month or so. Finally, when we were, and, and Zoom does not count. <laughs> Finally, when we're able to gather together again in the last month, I feel like there's more connection, but still there's this distance, this disconnection, because we, we don't have that, that connection like we had before this crisis. I think this crisis uh, made me consider this very oft-quoted verse that, uh, more closely. You know, I used to put this in my shotgun. When I was feeling very condemning of other people and wanted to have a little judgment, boy, I put that right in there. You should not forsake meeting together. 
being that kind of person that rarely misses church, I felt smug in my condemnation. But being forced to not go to church for a while made me truly understand why this is important. It's not because God is keeping attendance in his spreadsheet in the sky. No, I've learned from this time away from each other that we need each other. I've gotten lazy. Not teaching the kids week after week has uh, made me less reliant on God, less in tune to his ways, less sensitive to his movement. I need them. I need you. As elders, we've gathered a few times to talk about how we're doing with this COVID-19 thing. And in one discussion, as we were talking, we just said, um, maybe people are doing pretty well. Maybe they're getting along just fine without being together. And I got to tell you, not me. I have not been doing well. I realize now just how much I need to be out of my pajamas on a Sunday. I should not just be watching church on Facebook, but being with you at church. Now, there are many of you waiting at, or watching at home right now, and I want you to know that you're probably there because it's still risky for you to come out. I, I understand that completely. I would not dare suggest that someone that was in a high-risk group or was compromised in some way to come to church when it's not safe, by all means. But I will tell you, when this pandemic is over, when it is safe, come back to church. If you're watching from far away and you have uh, decided, you know what, a little church on the couch is okay, I implore you, it is not. Come back to church. I am now more than ever a firm believer in the embodied gathering of the faithful. We need to be together. Hebrews says we, when we come together, we spur each other on. That word spur usually has a negative connotation. It can mean can be translated irritate, like a rock in your shoe. But that irritation is not to bring us down, but to build us up toward loving God and loving others. I need that irritation. It doesn't always feel good, but it is good. I need you to remind me to do that, and, and we can do that by being together. You know, in the days of the writing of this book of Hebrews, people that had claimed the Christian faith were starting to fall away. Throughout this book, there are warnings against falling away. I don't think this really has to do with their, their eternal security. That's a big dis discussion for another time. But it's about the reality of a church that had attracted a bunch of people, and now those people in the midst of, of a, a crisis were not showing that they truly believed it. It happens all the time. There's a shiny new thing, people gather around it, but it starts to lose its luster and people wander. I think that's what's happening here in the book of Hebrews, and the author is pleading with them, don't do that. Rather than growing farther apart, we need to stick together, even more so, he says, as the day draws near. The author knows that there's going to be dark days ahead. There will be persecutions, there will be deaths. The hall of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews catalogs what happens to people that came before them it says there were others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain gain an even better resurrection some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were put to death by stoning they were sawed in two they were killed by the sword they went about in sheepskin and goatskins destitute persecuted mistreated the world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. The author notes that trouble comes to those who draw near and hold fast. And he knows that we need each other. So this is your co-pilot. Check your gauges for consider. Are you meeting regularly? And I don't mean just coming to church and taking in a nice sermon and singing a song or two. Are you engaging with people? Are you spurring people on? Are you being spurred on? There's a tendency and an honesty necessary to be spurred and to spur. You have to allow people in to challenge you. Just on Friday, I had one of those feedback meetings um, where uh, another department manager um, had to spend some time with me to talk about some things that my department was doing. See, I'm the, I'm the technical support manager. I have a bunch of people that do all the tech support, and sometimes we drop the ball, and this other department gets to hear about that. And they get to talk to me about some opportunities for growth. If you've ever spent any time in corporate America, you know exactly what that means. It's no fun. Now, I can either go into those meetings loaded for bear on how it's not my fault or customers are unreasonable or any other thing, or I can go in with open ears and an open heart, ready to hear what needs to be heard. You can guess which way is better for me to go. Same with meeting together here. We could come here and be loaded for bear about how bad everyone else is and how persecuted I feel and the range of topics on how I'm oppressed and my rights are being infringed. Or we can come to church with open ears and an open heart ready to hear this truth. God loves you. He wants all that is best for you. He wants you to do things His way in His time. Repent from what you're doing that is wrong and turn to what is right. Turn back to God. Draw near to God with a true heart. Hold fast to the hope that is true about Him and consider how you can spur each other on and be spurred yourself. This is your pilot speaking. We've been cleared for takeoff. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my friends here that have taken to heart this truth that we should not forsake the assembly together, that we should spur each other on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet each, with each other as some in the habit are, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. I pray, God, for my friends here and my friends away that they would draw near to you, that they would hold fast to you because of what Jesus did for us when he shed his blood and died on the cross, breaking his body and guiding us in to acceptance by God through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gather now around the table, this little table. If you, haven't, if you didn't pick one of these up on your way in, uh, there are trays by the door. 
for us to uh, take communion together. Just reflect again on Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks and said, This is my body, which is for you. We'll remove that top seal and take that bread. He said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Thank you, Jesus, for your body, your life that you gave. You lived the perfect life that we could not live. And you gave that life up voluntarily for us to cleanse us and to free us from sin. Thank you for your sacrifice of your body. Jesus, in the same way that night, took the, bre- the blood, uh, sorry, the, the cup, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let me try to open this part. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood to to make a way for us to be right with God. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would... Uh, remember this truth in our daily lives. We would share with others this truth that Jesus died for them and saved them from their sin. We proclaim this truth in this taking of the bread and the cup until he comes again. Amen. It just occurred to me that, is this the third week of the month? Are we doing that? Okay. So, sorry, (laughs) the third week of the month, um, we always do a benevolence offering. Um, This is a way for us to to, um, give to people that are in need in our community, and obviously there are plenty of people in need in our community. So, uh, ushers will come around with, are you going to come around, or or what are we going to do? Just do the basket by the offering box. So, please remember that to do, put a, a benevolence offering in the offering box as you leave today. All right. Thank you, Randy. Um, so we have redesigned the service so that most of the singing is at the end. But um, if you are concerned about the group singing, um, feel free to leave at this time. And um, as you consider that, or we spur you on to do that if you want, uh, more from Hebrews today in Hebrews 4 as we anticipate singing the next song, Before the Throne of God Above. Just imagine we are here before the throne of God, um, and we have this good hope. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one 
who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's stand and sing together.
the benediction please wait at your seats for the ushers to release you and um yeah the last song is death was arrested death has been stopped apprehended conquered defeated destroyed by jesus christ second timothy 1:10 says but it that's god's grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope.
before we go. Uh, we are doing the backpack ministry for the schools. We still need five more backpacks. So if you have not done that yet um, and you're interested, uh, please talk to... Who do they talk to? Okay. And uh, we still need shoes. Plenty of shoes, new shoes. So you can uh, do those as well. Um, on the inside of the bulletin, there's a few things to remember about a baptism and Lord's Supper class that's coming up. Alpha, if you're not clear on what Alpha is... Um, Check out uh, the website and um, talk to Pastor Gary if you're interested in more about that. That's coming up soon, and we're really excited about it. Here's how the Bible ends. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>